Well, hey everyone, welcome back to the New Denver Church podcast. We are in a series called You Lost Me at Leviticus, and this is part 8B. So in the last message, which was part 8, we discussed chapter 17 of Leviticus and how it's all about the sacredness of life. And at first glance, uh, it seems like it's all about blood, right? There's lots of discussion about blood in this chapter. But as we've seen in Leviticus, blood is always about life and death. The, the key phrase in, in the, right in the middle of chapter 17 is, the life of a creature is in its blood. So there's, there's a lot of lessons there about life and death and the sacredness of life. Now, today... Instead of flying lower to the ground and digging into some of the weeds of chapter 17, that's usually what we do. We sort of fly lower to the ground and get into the weeds. Today, instead, we're going to pull up and we're going to fly a lot higher. We're going to go up to 30,000 feet and we are going to look at the bigger picture of what's happening in Leviticus because there's a shift that takes place at chapter 17 and we're going to look at that a little bit. And how the different parts of Leviticus uh, connect with each other. So, uh, my name's Norton, and um, I'm glad you've been listening to this podcast. If you've been with us for a while, if you're just joining us for the first time, uh, you're sort of jumping in right in the middle, so it might be easier to go back and listen from the beginning. Um, But I've always hoped and prayed that you would find some benefit from these podcasts, um, and not just intellectual benefit. I mean, that's part of it. It's It can be fun to think about some of these things. But really, my hope is that these podcasts have been encouraging and challenging to you in your journey of faith, wherever you are in that in that journey of faith. So that's the ultimate goal, that you be encouraged in some way, and maybe at times also challenged and pushed in some ways as well. So let's jump in. Uh, chapter 17, as we said, begins a new section in Leviticus. And um, it might not feel that way at first, right? Because it's about blood and animals, and and that seems a lot like what's come before in Leviticus. But over the next couple of weeks, um, or at least the next couple of messages, I don't know if you're listening to these back-to-back, but you're going to realize, or if you're reading Leviticus, when you get into this, you know, chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, and on, you're going to realize the second half of Leviticus is somewhat different from the first half. And so this is a good time to step back and look at the whole structure of Leviticus to to talk about when this book was actually written, who wrote it, how it was written, and um, how the answers to those questions might shape some of the content and the structure of Leviticus. So here's a warning. I'm going to introduce you to a few scholarly discussions um, and I've done that a lot in these sort of part B messages, and so my hunch is that you like those or else you wouldn't keep listening. Um, but I think these discussions are not only fascinating, but they're going to add some deeper layers of meaning to our understanding of the book. So uh, just sort of put your seatbelt on and hold on. Um, and uh, at first, you might not see how this makes a difference, but you- you'll see it by the end. So let's start with structure. Uh, and first, Let me give you a microstructure to this book because there are some pretty clear sections in the book of Leviticus where uh, things shift gears, right? Where you're reading one group of chapters and they're talking about one thing and then suddenly there's a new idea or a new topic and it's like a brand new section. 
And uh, there are some reasons for those shifts, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But if you were to outline this book, and this is what scholars do, if you were trying to figure out the movement between these different sections, how would you do it? Right? And, and, and scholars are always doing this. Every commentary written on the book of Leviticus always starts with these discussions. How do you outline, how, how do you think about the structure of this book? Because it seems clear that there's an intentional structure. That Leviticus isn't just sort of a bunch of random verses slapped together. Um, that there's an intentional structure, which actually brings up a side note. Let me talk about it for a second. There were no chapter and verse divisions in the book of Leviticus when it was originally written. And this is true of all books in the Bible. Um, all of those chapters and verses, those numbers, right, that, in our, that are in our modern Bibles, those were all added much later. And uh, in one way, they're really helpful because we, we can then be all talking about the same passage, right? If I say, today, let's read from chapter 17, um, then you know where to turn in Leviticus. You can turn to chapter 17 because we all have the same chapter 17, right? Um, and if those verses and those chapter divisions weren't there, and I said, hey, today we're going to read from the book of Leviticus and we're going to read about that passage that talks about animals and blood, uh, <laughs> every single one of us would turn to a different passage, right? Because there's like 14 different passages about animals and blood in Leviticus. So the chapters and the verses are helpful in that way. They're helpful for sort of getting around. But just remember, they're not original. There were no verses or chapters originally there. And so it's possible these could be harmful in the sense that the people that broke up these chapters and verses um, might have broken up sections that the author didn't originally intend, right? Um, and in fact, your Bible might even have little section headings where it says, these are verses about blood. Those are added later as well. This was just one long book of sentences in the original uh, writing. Um, and so just keep all of that in mind. So let me give you a microstructure that a lot of scholars see in the book of Leviticus. And it's actually what's called a chiasm. <laughs> so that's your scholarly word for the day, chiasm. It's spelled C-H-I-A-S-M, chiasm. Or another way of saying this is a chiastic structure. So a chiasm is when something is structured like this, A, B, C, B, A, <laughs> right? So there's a writing and the things that are talked about in the beginning are very similar. They're not exactly the same, but they're similar to the things at the end. So like first section is A, the last section is A. The things that are talked about in the second part or the second section are very similar to the uh, fourth part or the fourth section. And then that middle part, in my example, C, is unique, right? Now, a chiasm doesn't always have just five parts. There can be seven parts, right? It can be like A, B, C, D, C, B, A. There can be nine parts, right? It's usually odd in that sense. Um, or in poetry, sometimes it's A, B, B, A. You see this in a lot of uh, very traditional poems where there's a stanza that has four lines. And the first line is sort of parallel in some way to the last line and the two middle lines are parallel. But there's always this movement in a chiasm, there's movement to a center 
And then there's movement back out in a mirrored or reverse fashion. And so here's a great way to visualize this. Picture an hourglass, right? An hourglass where it's big at top and then it works its way down to the funnel in the middle and then it's it's big again and the reverse is true on the bottom. It sort of reverses back out. And chiasms work the same exact way. They work down, in, whether it's a book or a letter or some sort of writing, they work down to a central idea that is in the middle, and then they reverse back out. And as I said, this is in all kinds of literature. There's a lot of poetry that is written this way. This is a literary device. Um, a lot of ancient Greek works um, are written this way. There's huge sections of the Iliad and the Odyssey that have this structure. Um, in fact, the word chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi, C-H-I, which looks like an X, right? An X. So an X is an hourglass shape. You know, it's two things that cross and in the middle it's small. So, so this isn't just a Bible thing. This is a literary thing. But scholars see this intentional and structure in the book of Leviticus, and here's how it works. Here's how the chi, here's the microstructure I was talking about. Uh, chapters one through seven are about the rituals in the tabernacle. Remember all the sacrifices they bring. So it's about rituals in the tabernacle. Then chapters 8 through 10 are about the priests. Remember, there's that story about how the priests are ordained and then that strange fire story. And then chapters 11 through 15 are about purity laws, what people have to do to be pure. Chapter 16 is about the day of atonement or the day of cleansing. That's the middle of the X or the middle of the hourglass. And then chapters 17 through 20 are about holiness laws, which are similar to the purity laws in 11 through 15. Chapters 21 through 22 come back to some discussion about the priests. And then chapters 23 through 25 discuss rituals again, specifically the holidays. And then there's a conclusion in the last couple of chapters of the book. So we have, it starts with rituals, then priests, then laws for the people, then the day of cleansing in the middle, then laws for the people again, then priests, then back to rituals. So do you see this, this chiasm, this sort of chiastic structure? And you might be sitting there going, well, well that's interesting, but what, what would be the point of that? What's the point of having a structure like that? Well, there's two points, two, two very important purposes. First of all, it's very orderly and very intentional. The structure is very orderly and very intentional, which the entire book of Leviticus is about, right? The whole thing is about order and intention. In a chaotic and confusing world, God is going to bring order and intention to our lives. He is reordering the lives of these people and he is reordering the world. And so, the very structure of the book of Leviticus is saying something. But here's the second thing. The, one of the important things about a chiasm or this kind of chiastic structure is that you always see what is most central. There's something in the center of the structure that holds everything together. It's like the fulcrum around which everything turns. It's the middle of the hourglass. It's the, it's the middle of the X, the point in the very center, the most central part. And for Leviticus, the structure makes it super clear that it's the day of cleansing. 
the Day of Atonement. This ritual at the very center of the structure is the most important thing around which everything turns. Now, we'll come back to that in a second. That's a microstructure, which is why chapter 17 represents a turning point. We've gotten to the center, the Day of Atonement, but now it's going to start turning in a different direction, a move in a different direction. Now, let me give you a macro structure, which uh, I sort of just made up those two words. Those, that, that macro structure is just a fancy way of saying, let me give you something more simple. Microstructure is very detailed. Let me give you something simple that sees Leviticus with really just two main halves. And uh, even though there's this mirroring structure, the first half seems to be more concerned with one set of ideas and then the second half of Leviticus moves in a new direction. And so here's one way of looking at it. The first half is mostly about what happens at the tabernacle and the priests, right? All these discussions of everything that happens at the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, same thing, and the priests, right? So it's about holy space and these holy priests, Whereas the second half of Leviticus from chapter 17 on is so much more concerned with what happens outside the tabernacle and with the people at large being a holy community in the world at large. Now, there are some exceptions to this in both halves, but that's the overall trajectory. Here's another way to look at it. The first half is about drawing near to God moving inward from the community to the tabernacle. People are coming from their homes to bring offerings at the tabernacle, moving inward. The second half is about being the people of God, moving outward from the tabernacle to the community. Here's another way to put it. The first half is about God's holiness. The second half is about the people's holiness. First half, God says, I am holy, right? Second half is about, so you are to be holy. Or here's another way. The first half is about our relationship with God. If I'm an Israelite, it's about our relationship with God. The second half is about our relationship with other people and with creation in general. Or or, or here's another way. First half is about belief. An identity in God. The second half is about our ethics, our mission, how we live that out, and our identity in the world. So do you see this movement? And again, there are some exceptions, right? There's some parts we get to in the second half where it's almost like whoever's writing Leviticus says, oh yeah, there's some other stuff about the priests in the tabernacle that I forgot to say in the first half, so let me talk about that right now. But on the whole, there's an inward movement in the first half that is about our uh, about God and who he is and our identity in him, and there's an outward movement in the second half that is about how we live and our identity as his people in the world. And don't miss this. These two things are not disconnected. They make up two halves of the whole. They are integrated. They are necessarily connected to one another and they are necessary for each other. Our identity in God, 
The Israelites would conclude as they read and they study and they reflect on this book, our identity in God should always shape our identity in the world. I mean, how many times do we see that phrase in Leviticus? We're going to see it over and over if you've been reading along with us. Be holy because I am holy. You, be holy in the world because I am holy and your identity is found in me. So these two things always go together. If you have one without the other, you're missing something. It's incomplete. It's not the whole thing. You cannot have identity in God and not live out his mission to be his people in the world. You cannot bring God's justice, God's compassion, God's wholeness, God's holiness, God's peace into the world without identity in him. And this is why John said in that passage that we read in the last message, right? You can't love God without loving other people. The two things go together. They're they're connected. It's why Jesus would say, as a good Jewish rabbi, Jesus would say, I can sum up the entire Torah in two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. Everything in the Torah is wrapped up in these two things. Love God and love your neighbor. But here's the deal. You don't have to rely on Jesus to understand that. Leviticus gives us a picture of that. You just have to do a little work to get through all the weeds and all the rules and all the details of Leviticus to see it. But if you can step back for a second, you can see the beautiful picture. There's there's 15 chapters of here's how you draw near to God. Here's what you need to know about God. He's on your side. He saved you from Egypt. Here's how you can approach him. Here's how you can be made whole with him. Here's how you can be made pure by him. That's the God, the loving God part. And then from chapter 17 onward, here's what you do when you're outside the tabernacle. When you're in your fields, when you're in your camp, here's how you take your identity as his new and redeemed people. And here's how you live that out in the world. Now, chapter 17 starts in this weird way, right? Because it's still about blood and it's about animals. And we're thinking like, this is still like the first half of the book, but it's all about what's happening in their tents. It's about what's happening in their fields. It's about what's happening at their dinner tables. It's about their relationship with their neighbors, right? And it's almost like chapter 17 is saying, okay, okay, here's the very first principle For living as God's people in the world, don't ever forget all life is sacred. All life is sacred. Start living that way in your life, in the details of your life, as if all life is sacred. And then it moves on from there. And we're going to get into chapter 18 in the next message. So if the first half is about our identity with God and the second half is about living as God's people in the world, what's the fulcrum again? It's the day of cleansing. It's the day of atonement. The day of cleansing, it's like the conclusion to the first half of the book. Hey, don't forget, even if you screw up, even if you fail big time, even if there's sin in your life that you have not confessed, even if you didn't bring all the sacrifices when you were supposed to and follow all of the rules in the way you were supposed to all the time, even if you are filled with regret and failure on the day of cleansing, it will all be wiped away. It will all be forgiven. 
You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt who God is on this day, that he is still on your side and that he is a God of mercy and forgiveness. But let's also not forget that the day of cleansing is the beginning of the second half because it's on this day you're given a new start. It's on this day that is the beginning of a new year. This forgiveness, this cleansing, this propels you forward to live as the people of God. And the day of cleansing, remember, it's not individualistic, right? It's not just, hey, pray this prayer in your closet by yourself and you'll be made with God, uh, right with God again and your heart's going to feel all better. It is a communal ritual. It is the entire community doing nothing, no work on that day and coming together as a people to say, it's not just us as individuals that need to be made clean. We as an entire community need to be made clean so we can live God's mission out into the world. Do you see how this trajectory in the book of Leviticus can give movement to what we're reading And do you also see, it's not just about Leviticus, right? It's about all of us. I mean, this is about all of our journeys of faith. Whoever you are and wherever you are, this is about you and this is about me, right? Because we see this picture of who God is and who we are in Him, finding our identity in Him and who we are in the world and how we live out that identity in the world, how we live out that mission in the world and how those two things, who we are in God and how we live as his people in the world, they're always deeply connected and you cannot have one without the other. If you have one without the other, you will always be fragmented and frustrated and in complete. Because you see, uh, there are a lot of activists, right? Maybe you're one of them. Maybe you know people who are that way, who are passionate about getting things done, about going out into the world and working for justice or working for compassion. And they have a vision and a heart and this, this deep drive and motivation to change the world, right? And these are some of the most amazing people because they go out and they They do so much. And you also know that if you're one of them, it's easy to lose hope really quickly when you're trying to change the world. It's easy to lose faith. It's easy to get frustrated because you begin to realize that there's massive systems that need change and you're doing every single thing you can and the systems aren't changing. The new order that you're trying to bring to the world isn't being welcomed by the world. And the world doesn't care about all the things that you care about and all the people that you care about. And it is so easy to get burned out and it is so easy to give up so quickly. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes is the the problem is that you don't have that first half. You haven't nurtured that, that, that identity, that, that grounding, that, that centering in God, that, that foundational 
faith. You're, you're trying to change the world and you're doing it all on your own strength, on your all, on your own drive, on your own motivation, right? And there's not this foundation, this, this deep well, this deep source, right? You're always concerned about the outward journey, but, but if you're honest, sometimes we ignore the inward journey, right? There's only outward action and outward activity, but there's no inward reflection, no inward finding our identity in something so much bigger than ourselves. And that is always a recipe for burnout, sometimes for disaster, right? Here's the flip side, because the flip side is true as well. And honestly, I've probably seen the flip side most often in Christian churches where people, myself included, we love to talk about God. We love to talk about who God is. We love to study the Bible. We love to come to church. We love to reflect on all of these deep truths and gain all of this knowledge. And sometimes there's very little action. There's very little living it out. We don't really love our neighbors. Many of us don't even know our neighbors, like our actual neighbors. There's little work for justice. There's not a lot of holiness. Our lives don't even look that different than our neighbors, right? We eat the same food. We watch the same TV shows. We go on the same vacations. We celebrate the same holidays. We make the same mistakes. We get addicted to the same vices. We become workaholics in the same way. We're not really any different than anyone else. And so we like to talk about God and Jesus, and we like to sing about God and Jesus and his holiness, right? And God is looking at us and he's saying, hey, why don't you stop talking about my holiness and why don't you start being holy yourselves? Why don't you start being different? Why don't you start actually being compassionate and being forgiving? in ways that will be unexplainable to others. Why don't you stop judging other people and start loving other people? Why don't you start actually working for justice? Why don't you start actually loving the poor? Why don't you live your lives in such a way that people look at you and they look at community of faiths and there's a bit, they're a bit dumbfounded because you are so different and there's something so countercultural about the way you're living and it's countercultural in a really compelling way. Peter, the Apostle Peter, says this in the New Testament. He starts quoting from the Old Testament saying that followers of Jesus are like a new priesthood, a holy nation. They're fulfilling the, the destiny that Israel was always meant to fulfill. And then he stops and he pauses and he says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, he's writing to followers of Jesus. He says, live such good lives among the pagans... He could have said neighbors there, right? Live such good lives among other people who don't believe the things that you believe that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Basically, live in such a way that people who are not followers of Jesus would look at you and your life and they would say, man, those people are a little odd they're a little strange, but there's also something deeply compelling about them. There's something about the God they worship that is vastly different and also really intriguing. In the same way, the Canaanites, 
might have said about the Israelites. Hey, those people are strange. They're odd. They eat different foods than we do. They have these different holidays and these different practices, and they have different views about sex, and they take one day off every week to rest? Why would they do that? Everyone knows you work seven days a week, right? Why would they take an entire day to rest? Who does that? But there's something that's compelling about those people. There's something about the God that they worship that we want to know more about. You see, Leviticus is a picture of the two halves of the life of faith, of the two identities of a community of faith. Identity found in God and who he is and our identity found in being his people in the world. And this is super important as we come into this this next section. We're going to read chapters 18 and 19 and 20, and they're like the heart of these instructions about how to be God's holy people in the world. So we're going to get to that next time, but that's where things are moving. Now, that's quite a long sort of uh, bit about structure, right? But that gives you a picture of understanding some deeper things about what's happening in Leviticus when you understand some of the structure of Leviticus. Now, let me talk specifically um, about how and when Leviticus was written, because this is going to be important too. And and let me first dispel a myth. And this myth might, uh, as I dispel it, it might be a bit jarring initially, so just hang with me. Um, The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah which means law or instruction or teaching in Hebrew. And uh, sometimes these first five books are also called the Pentateuch, another fancy scholarly word. It's actually two Greek words put together that mean five books. Penta and Tuch mean five books or five scrolls. Um, And so that's these first five books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And they are traditionally said to be written by Moses. And here's the idea that we sometimes picture That while the people of Israel are out Mount Sinai, right, they're camped in the wilderness, Moses writes these five books. And maybe it just starts with the Ten Commandments, right? God says, these are important, Moses, write these down. And so he writes them down. And then God gives Moses a whole bunch of other laws and instructions. And Moses decides it's probably a good idea to write all that stuff down too. And uh, so he, you know, orders a whole bunch of scrolls and pens from Amazon, right? And and because he's got a lot of writing to do and he's holed up in his tent and he's sitting at his study and he's writing all of these rules and all of these instructions down. And of course, he needs to write down the whole story of how they made it out of Egypt as well. And so he writes all that down. Uh, and of course, he writes down some other stories of stuff that happens to them while they're in the wilderness. And of course, he needs to give the backstory to all of this. And so he writes Genesis too. This is where we came from as a people, so you understand all of this. So there's Genesis, and then there's Exodus, which is the story part, and then there's the rules, and so he writes Leviticus, and then there's more rules and numbers, and, uh, and, and then he wraps it all up with Deuteronomy, which include more instructions and more stories, right up until Moses' death, when the people are at the edge of the promised land, they're about to enter the promised land, this is when Moses dies, and, uh, and then the next book's of the Old Testament pick up the story there with the new leader, Joshua, and what happens after Moses' death when the people enter the promised land. And so the picture we sometimes have is that God dictates all of these things to Moses, and he's mostly in his tent 
He's like Bilbo Baggins. He's sitting at his desk, writing all of this down. And when he's done, he has five big books or volumes. And just before he dies, he hands them over to the new leaders, you know, Bilbo Baggins here. And he basically says, live by these books and by this teaching. And the people of Israel tried to do that for the rest of their history. And the Torah has this very honored place in their history. That is probably not what happened. (laughs) And we know that that's not what happened for a whole bunch of reasons. And I don't have time to go into all of them right now, but I'll just give you a few quick ones. When you begin to really dig deep into these five books, especially if you learn Hebrew and you can read Hebrew, but even in the English, you can see this oftentimes, you begin to notice that there are some very different writing styles in these five books. There are whole sections that have one writing style, and then suddenly there's a shift and there's a new section, and it's very clear that this is a different writing style. There's new grammar that's being used. There's new content that's being talked about. There's a new tone. um, There's a new focus. There's even a different name for God. And it's fascinating. You'll read one section, and the word for God that's used over and over is El or Elohim. That's the, the most common word for God in Hebrew. And then suddenly, it just switches gears, and it starts talking about Yahweh. And the whole next section uses the word Yahweh for God, and that's the personal name that God told the people to call him by. And it uses Yahweh over and over and over, and you don't see Elohim at all. And then all of a sudden, it switches back, and it starts using Elohim again. And it's just clear that this is probably not one author. There's some different writing styles. There's some different... It's like a bunch of different pieces have been put together. Uh, There's also a lot of repetition. And you know this, if you've ever tried to sit down, not in one sitting, but over the course of a few weeks, read all the first five books. It's like you get to another section of Leviticus and you're like, didn't they say this in Exodus? It's like the same stuff. And then you get to Deuteronomy and it's like repeated again. There's all these same laws and all these same instructions and they're repeated. And sometimes they're word for word repeated and sometimes they're slightly different. And it's like, why would, if if Moses was sitting down and writing all this, why did he repeat himself like three different times? And then why did he say it? Why didn't he just, you know, copy and paste? Why did he say it in a slightly different way here? And it starts to become pretty clear the same person did not write these two sets of instructions that are about the same thing but are said in different ways. And the same person wouldn't have repeated these things over and over. And so scholars have discerned, and there's a lot of agreement about this. And and this is a massive discussion, right? I'm giving you the five-minute version. But scholars have discerned that it's very unlikely that one person, Moses, just sat down and wrote all of this. Now, there's all kinds of theories about who did write this and what role did Moses play, right? Because Moses certainly played some role. Maybe he didn't write every single word of it, um, but there are significant traditions that assert that he was a big role in this, and, and it's pretty undeniable that he did play a role. So maybe he wrote some of it. Maybe he shaped some of it. Uh, maybe he asked others to write other. So, so, but there's all kinds of theories, and and there's huge books and dissertations written about how 
these five books were put together and who put them together and who actually wrote them. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to try to summarize some of the the, the most why a couple of the most widely accepted conclusions. And again, there's a lot of diversity here. So I'm just going to summarize some of the most widely accepted conclusions. And then I'll tell you why this is all so important for Leviticus. Uh, first, it's likely that Moses did write some of these instructions down, but it's also likely that others like Aaron, Aaron's the high priest he would have been very concerned with all of these instructions, so he might have written some of these things down. His sons are the priests. It's likely that some of them might have written these down. Uh, later generations of his uh, descendants, the next generation of, 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 of priests might have written some of these down because there might have been a lot of oral tradition. Uh, oral tradition was really big in that culture, so it's possible that early on, it's like there were just all these set of instructions and laws and they were passed down orally because it's not like today. I mean, I mean, obviously a joke about Amazon before. It's not like paper and pens and scrolls were easy to come by in that time. It was it, you just didn't write things down then the way you write them down today. And so it was an oral tradition. And so maybe it was all these body of laws that were just passed on orally. And that might also explain some of the repetition because repetition is really helpful for passing things down orally. So maybe it's oral and then it's only a generation or two later that, that some priests were like, you know what, we should really write this down on, on scrolls. Um, but we know that the original instructions and the original body of instructions likely came from this time when they were in the wilderness, which would have been roughly 13th century B.C., there's also debates about that. There's some people that take an earlier date in the 15th century, but I think it's more compelling. And most scholars would say roughly 13th century BC is when they leave Egypt and they're in the wilderness. Um, but, uh, but these things are written down by Moses or Aaron or some of the priests and in different ways, maybe pass along orally. But here's also where there's a lot of scholarly consensus that the actual book of Leviticus that we have today in the form that we have today was probably not completed until hundreds of years later, probably not until about 500 BC. Now, don't let that freak you out. <laughs> that just means it was compiled later. It was edited later. It was put in its final form later. Maybe all of the instructions existed before that. Maybe they were in fragments. Maybe they were in much longer books. Maybe they were very scattered and disorganized. Maybe they were huge volumes, right? And it's later that some priests got together and they said, you know what? We need to organize this. We need to make this a lot cleaner. We need to pull all of these different fragments and all of these different teachings and all of these different instructions together. And, uh, and they compiled it and they edited it and they cleaned it all up and they put it in the final version of Leviticus that we have today. But that probably didn't happen until around 500 BC, many, 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 many years later. Now, does that make sense? Nod your head right now if that makes some sense. <laughs> The teachings and the instructions come from the context of the Exodus and the wilderness wandering and the wilderness time period, 
But the final form of the book that we have today comes from a context so much later. Here's an illustration of how that might happen today. Here's an example to maybe help you understand this. It would be like today, if you wanted to know what the founding fathers of America thought about democracy. And there was an author, let's pretend she's a historian, and she decides that this is an important topic to help people understand today. What did the founding fathers believe about democracy? And so she goes back and she collects some of the most important writings some of the most important speeches, some of the most important letters of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and Benjamin Franklin. And whenever they address important ideas about democracy, she takes those fragments and she takes those excerpts and she puts them all together in a book where you could understand what the founding fathers believed about democracy. And in her book that she publishes, As an editor, she might add an introduction to kind of set things up. That would be helpful. She might even put together a conclusion. She would probably put together some footnotes to help you understand where things came from. Um, She might even add some transitions between the chapters. She would organize the material in a way that she thought it would be most helpful for you to read, right? That's kind of what the book of Leviticus is like. It's compiled and edited by someone much later using existing documents and instructions from much earlier, but it's compiled and edited much later. And if that's how it all comes together, this explains a number of things. Number one, it explains some of the transitions in the book. (laughs) So let me give you an example. In chapter 10, There is this story about the priests and Aaron's sons, two sons that tragically die. And then suddenly chapter 10 shifts to chapter 11 and you start hearing about all of these purity laws. And that goes on for five chapters, chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. And then you get to chapter 16 and here's how chapter 16 starts. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. And it's almost as if chapter 16 picks up right where chapter 10 ended. And it's possible that that's exactly the case because that's exactly how the original story was written down. Aaron's sons died. There's this tragic thing that happens. And then the very next story is basically saying, hey, don't worry. God is not that mean. God is not that angry. He's actually a God of mercy. In fact, one day a year, you can come to him and be forgiven of anything and everything you've ever done. And it moves right into this day of the dis- this discussion about the day of cleansing. But as the later editors were putting all of this together in roughly 500 BC, they inserted chapters 11 through 15 in between. And those five chapters probably existed independently. They were a set of purity laws. And the priests who are putting together the book of uh, Leviticus at the time, they come to this story about Aaron's sons. They tell the story. They include that, right? And this tragic story. And you might remember in the middle of that story in chapter 10, it says, by the way, the priests need to take their role really seriously. And one of their roles is to teach the people to distinguish between what's clean and what's unclean, what's pure and what's taboo. And so the editors are like, oh, wait a second. This would be a great place to put that section in about all of those purity laws. 
Because if the priests are supposed to teach people, we need to tell people what they need to teach them. And so they put all that section in. That's chapters 11 through 15. And then chapter 16 picks the story right back up again and tells its readers how we can be forgiven by God. Now, that happens a whole bunch of times in Exodus. I mean, in Leviticus. Well, in Exodus too, but in Leviticus, where the style of writing or the content suddenly shifts. And that's probably because there was a different fragment or a different uh, collection of teaching and the editors are putting it all together. It's like an anthology. They're putting these chapters and these bodies of instruction and teaching together. And sometimes they might add transitional sentences to make it flow well. And sometimes they don't. And sometimes you get to this hard right turn and that's probably why. It's because they're editing this book. They're putting together all of these instructions about the rituals that their people have been doing and have been following for hundreds of years, the rituals that help them draw close to God and the rituals that help them live as a holy people. And here's why I share all of that background. It's not because it's just interesting and it's not just because it explains some of the structural shifts in Leviticus It's because now you have to realize we actually have two contexts for the book of Leviticus. We have the original context, which is what I've almost entirely been talking about throughout this whole series. The time period after the Exodus where the people are in the wilderness and they're learning what does it mean to become the new and holy people of God and how are we going to live that out when we get to the promised land. And of course, at that point, some of these instructions and some of this, uh, these stories about how to do that is written down and it's recorded. Maybe some of those stories are just being circulated orally. Maybe there are speeches given from Moses and those speeches are being recorded by the priests. And, and maybe some of all of this is being memorized as a people. That's the original context. But now we have a second context. And the second context is when the book is edited in its final form that we have today. And it was roughly 500 BC. Uh, There's debate about this. It could be earlier. It could be later. But just for simplicity's sake on this podcast, let's just use that date, 500 BC. And that context will also shape the content of the book of Leviticus and how it's all put together. Because let's go back to the founding father's example for a second. Right now in our country, There are debates and discussions about what democracy should look like. There's tons of political division, right? There's clashing ideas about the role of the press in a democracy. There's ideas about the role of government in a democracy. There's ideas about the role of religion. There's ideas about the powers of the president, right? And so when this historian sits down and she decides to edit a new book on how the founding fathers understood democracy... What issues do you think she is going to be most concerned with in this book? She's going to be concerned with the issues that we're concerned about today. She's going to be concerned with addressing the questions that we are all asking today. So essentially, she's going to say, here's the context of us right now reading this book. And that context is going to shape what she includes in the book. 
She's going to include things that the founding fathers said about democracy that are going to shape the questions we're asking today. She's going to draw on ideas that answer those questions that we have about democracy today. In fact, the very subject that she takes up in her book is driven by the context today. She could have written a book about what the Father Father's viewpoints are on how to plant tobacco. But no one would read that book. <laughs> no one would buy that book. No one cares right now what the Founding Fathers' viewpoints and positions were on the best way to plant tobacco. She's going to write and edit a book that will answer the questions we are asking today. Does that make sense? Now let me bring it all home. What is the context of the Israelites in 500 BC when this book of Leviticus is being put together and edited and finalized? The people are living in exile. They're in exile. They're not even living in the land of Israel. Because in 586 BC, the Babylonians, which were like the new Egyptians, swept in and they destroyed Israel. They destroyed Jerusalem, the capital at the time. They destroyed the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, which had basically become the permanent tabernacle. It was bigger than the tabernacle had ever been. It inherited everything about the tabernacle, about how they drew close to God and they offered their sacrifices to God. It was the center of all Israelite society. And the Babylonians swept in. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. They killed many of the Israelites there. And then they took the leaders, the priests, and the leaders of the nation, and they shackled them up in chains, and they took them into exile back into Babylon. And over the next hundred years, as the few people remained in exile in Babylon, and as some eventually returned to Israel to begin to rebuild their lives and try to rebuild their nation, there was one huge question they asked over and over and over what happened what happened to the dream and the vision of being god's people in the world why was our nation destroyed what did we do wrong because remember, their entire history, their entire tradition, their entire heritage, their entire faith said that God had created Israel to be a light to the world, to bring a new order into the world, to show the world who God was, and that the world would eventually be transformed as a result, and now the exact opposite has happened. And so the question that loomed so large in their consciousness for years and years and years and decades is what happened? Where did we go wrong? What did we do wrong? And Leviticus is answering that question. Let me jump ahead and just read for you 
a few verses from chapter 18 of Leviticus. This is the part of Leviticus we're about to read where it says how they're supposed to be pure, how they're supposed to be holy, how they're supposed to be different, how they're supposed to be light in the world, how they're supposed to live among their neighbors and live as God's people. And Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24 says this, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. And if you defile the land, and the land is big, God is always talking about the land that he is going to take them to, the land where they will settle, the land where they will live out this mission. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. What a jarring image. And we're going to return to this image over and over because the book of Leviticus uses this metaphor numerous times. We're going to look at it several times in the next few weeks, but it's super clear. If you do these things, these these things that all the other nations do that I've told you, do not do these things. Do not live like them. If you do them, you will defile yourselves And you will defile the land that I am giving you and the land itself will spit you out. It will vomit you out. It will not be able to stand your presence there. The land will evict you. You will be sent away from the land. And now... Do you see that a broken people living in despair and exile who are not even living in the promised land anymore, they're working through how and why all of this happened and they're coming to this conclusion, the reason we're in exile is because we lost our way. It's because we defiled ourselves. It's because we abandoned our God. It's because we abandoned our role and our mission as his holy people. And it's like the book of Leviticus is, is it's revisiting all of these things. It's revisiting all that God had done for them in the Exodus, all that God had called them to be, the order and the practices and the habits and the rhythms and the distinctives that they were to embody. And it's revisiting all of these things as a way of saying, here's what happened. We forgot who we were. We forgot how to live. We forgot the practices and the rhythms and the rituals that we were given. We abandoned our identity. We abandoned our mission. And it's in this moment of exile. And as they return from exile, that the priests come together and they revisit all of these instructions from their tradition and they revisit all of these laws and all of these rules and all of these practices and all of these teachings. And they put it all together so that they can re-embrace their calling as priests to lead the people who are left back into their calling as God's holy people. And so as we read for the next several chapters, 
We're going to read about ethics. And we're going to read about how the Israelites should live, how the Israelites should be different. Remember the two contexts. The original context is one of hope, right? We're in the wilderness. We've been saved. We've been delivered from slavery, and we're about to enter the promised land. And there is so much hope about what God is going to do through us for the world. But then there's the context of when all of this is put together. It's the context of exile. And it's a context where there's this mixture of despair because we failed And here's how we failed, and we have to be honest about that. But there's also glimmers of hope. That God is still with us. If God didn't give up in Leviticus 10, and if God doesn't give up, and God is still with us one day a year, and he forgives everything we've done, and he gives us a brand new start, then he can still give us a new start. And he hasn't given up on us yet. Perhaps we can still be the people he's called us to be. Perhaps we can still bring his light and his redemption into the world. But it starts with revisiting our identity. It starts with revisiting all of the practices and rhythms and rituals that he's given us by which we are his holy people. All right. That's it for today. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Um, If you want more resources, uh, we put a bunch of stuff on our website at newdenver.org slash Leviticus. There's also a link at the bottom of that page. If you have questions or things that you think we should discuss that we haven't, you can click that link and you can offer your comments and questions. I'd love to hear from them. And stay tuned. And I hope you'll join us next time where we plow through Leviticus 18 through 20. Thanks for listening.